Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. The National Weather Service is a lot more than the blaring alerts on your TV when there's a tornado warning in your area or the notifications on your phone about the severe thunderstorm watch issued for your state. The National Weather Service operates over 120 weather forecast offices across the country, and each office is constantly issuing local public, marine, aviation, fire, and hydrology forecasts 24-7, and we thank them. The National Weather Service never sleeps because the weather never sleeps. I'm sure my next guest can attest to many sleepless nights on the job. Keith Stellman is the meteorologist in charge for the National Weather Service Peachtree Centi, or National Weather Service Atlanta, as we like to say. And as I know personally, this area rarely has a dull weather day. Keith, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. No, thanks for having me. Yeah, Keith and I, uh, we've known each other for a while. We both are here in the Atlanta area. You came to the National Weather Service um, Peachtree City office in Atlanta, I guess, back, 12, uh, back 2012 or 2012, yeah. So. Yeah, and so... You were the warning coordination meteorologist for the National Weather Service Shreveport office from 2007 to 2012, and I want to talk about what that means. Uh, you've also been at the National Weather Service Regional Training Center, I guess, Southern Region, and the Techniques Development Meteorologist. Is I, was what a, I was at Southern Region Headquarters yeah. as a Techniques Development Meteorologist. Yeah, that, and that's I got, in Fort Worth, right? That's in Fort Worth. Yeah, what, what was that like? What was the... So, I mean, that was an interesting job because it was during the age when the internet was starting okay. to really blossom, and so we were developing things. In fact, some of the stuff that's on the web now uh, is code I wrote back when I was there in the okay. like mid 2000s. So, so you've kind of kind of had your hands in all kinds of things. Let me just continue to go through his resume before we dive into all things National Weather Service, because, you know, I think this is a first for us to have a meteorologist in charge uh, uh, on the podcast. And we're going to dive into the inner workings of a National Weather Service office. He was also senior hydro meteorologist in the lower Mississippi and West Gulf River forecast centers. He has a master's degree in meteorology from Florida State University. And I know a little bit about that place and a bachelor's degree in atmospheric sciences from North. East Louisiana University as well. So we have this tradition on the podcast where we like to ask our guests how you got into meteorology and when that all started. And for me, it was it, just like any meteorology you talk to, yep. it starts at a young age, sure. right? So um, uh, funny story, I grew up in Pennsylvania, Northwest okay. PA. Lake effect snows were a thing okay. right off of Lake Erie. Um, we were just south of the main core of the snow belt off of Lake Erie, so, but we would still get pretty good snow. And I was always the kid that would turn on the lights outside to see if it was snowing late at night in the winter time um and ironically when i was five years old my parents bought me one of those united states puzzles oh that, yeah they had yeah, the puzzle the pieces, pieces yeah the, the states. The state. right 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 and so i knew my capitals i knew my states at a young age but uh, more importantly there was a show that ran out of uh, state college it was called uh, am weather mm -hmm. i don't know if you remember the oh, show am uh, weather is a classic for those that don't know i know we have a lot of young listeners that may not but go back and google some of those old, I mean, yeah great stuff so i used to watch they'd run it twice a day they'd run the morning show and then they'd rerun it later in the evening and i'd, I'd watch it every time it'd come on and I had my puzzle pieces out, and I would cut out construction paper, the blue and the red, and simulate the warm front, cold front on my map, my U.S. map, right? Uh, just like they would do it on the on the uh, on the show. So, yeah. 
it started at an early age. And yeah, that, um, that's so consistent. I mean, I, I remember some surveys for our field and so many people in this field that uh, that really have ascended to the level that Keith has ascended to in his career. It started when we were kids. I mean, that's my story, too. So and now he is the he's the person in charge. He's the head of the, the National Weather Service office here in the Atlanta area. And as I said, it's technically called the National Weather Service Peachtree City. But I know your Twitter handle, I think, says Nas- National Weather Service Atlanta. Is right, that right? right. So I think that just makes a little more Peachtree City is a suburb south of Atlanta. Explain to her, just give a sort of an overview as we kind of dive in here. What does it mean to be the meteorologist in charge of the MIC? Sure. So, I mean, just like any job there's a, a manager or a person that's in charge of the personnel the inner workings of operations the equipment um, any um, issues the facility so I'm, I'm also the facility manager so things that go wrong with the facility I got to deal with that's everything from the janitorial contract to the to the uh, you know the yard and lawn contracts um, I deal with those um, the hiring the retirees, the, I mean, it, it, it encompasses everything as that a typical manager would. Yeah. You are, you are a manager of this Correct. office, but do you still get your hands oh, dirty yeah. in the meteorology? Yeah. In fact, it's, it's written in my job that I have to work at least 10% shift work. Oh, wow. So that's okay. at least one every two weeks. Um, and as short staffed as we've been the last couple of years, I've worked far more than that. I've worked as much as 25% shift. Right. So, and that's midnight shifts. That's holidays. I worked Christmas. Now, now, one of the things we want to do on this show is really just peel back a weather service office mm-hmm. for the listeners. Talk to me. What, what are the shifts? I mean, are, are there three standard shifts? So our office, and this varies by office because a lot of offices will set up their shift rotations around their key weather events. Um, for us, you know, we know that summertime convection is an issue. So we've backloaded the shift schedule later in the afternoon into the evening, so we have a lot of people around for the convective component of the day. Um, but for us, we run nine shifts a day. Nine? Nine, oh, nine wow. different shifts. Oh, wow. So there's you know nine different letters that somebody could work on, right. the, on the calendar. And um, each one has a separate responsibility. Um, there's three of those nine are specifically dealing with the short-term forecast and the aviation component I see. at Hartsfield. Okay. We got Two shifts a day that look at the long-term forecast, say days three through seven. Two shifts are, de- are dedicated to uh, upper air and public service, data collection. Uh, one shift is radar only. They are glued to the radar that eight hours, and that eight hours may shift. For example, we're looking at severe weather potential later today yes. and then again tomorrow. We're going to move that person to where we think the best chances are so that they're working radar during that time. Right. And then we have a, what we call a decision support shift, and that's for dealing with emails, partner relations, phone calls, anything to sort of help spread the word, more like a PIO position. I see. We have that shift once a day. Right. Now, you staff the, a, a typical National Weather Service office. I want to kind of go there. Okay. I know that, I mean, you're the senior administrator in charge there at the office, but I know that there are science operation officers. Shout out to Steve Nelson, uh, who right. uh, is in that role in here in Atlanta, warning coordination meteorologists and other sort of lead for- forecasters. Just talk about sure. what what you have in an office typically? So the typical office, and again, not all officers are the same, but the typical office, uh, you have the meteorologist in charge, myself, and then there's two weather managers that work underneath. That's the SU, the science and operations officer that you mentioned, Steve Nelson. Uh, they're responsible for the training and development of the staff, any research projects, research operations type stuff. Um, 
and they're sort of on the leading edge of the new technologies and things that are being implemented in the office to make sure that the staff is up to date on and up to speed on things. And we have a warning coordination meteorologist. They're like the PIO of the office. They're always at meetings, partner meetings, et cetera. Um, that's Dave Nadler for us. Yeah. And uh, he's been a WCM for a long time. Actually, he was at Huntsville WCM before he came here. Um, and then we have three senior forecast, or no, I'm sorry, five senior forecasters. Uh, those are the shift leaders. They're the shift supervisors. So we each, each shift, there's a, a senior forecaster on duty. They're responsible for the shift. Okay. If they need more people, it's their call. Right. And right. they'll usually come to us first or, to make sure and to see what the availabilities are. We'll discuss um, how we want to best approach if there's supplementation to the, to the schedule that we need to do. And then we'll come up with a plan on how to do it. Yeah, we're talking with uh, Keith Stellman, who's the meteorologist in charge of the National Weather Service Atlanta office, about the inner workings. I, I, I'm certain that anyone listening to the Weather Geeks podcast right now benefits from the National Weather Service, whether you know it or not. And I want to kind of go there now because a lot of people don't realize sort of the relationship the National Weather Service office has between, say, their media partners. You guys work quite a bit with the local television stations, who's usually the front end of what most people see. But beneath that, it's you all and your warnings. You're, I mean, the, the, the TV stations can't issue watches and warnings. Correct. You guys are doing that. Right. Talk about that a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, a lot of the data, I mean, we have 21 meteorologists working in our staff and uh, always looking at the data, the things that we don't have to worry about are the things the TV folks have to worry about. There's other things they have to do. Um, but we obviously are di- diving into all the data, mining it, um, and determining, you know, what's upcoming. And then when we get to the warning phase, they're the ones that ultimately pull the trigger on issuing the actual warning. So uh, when that warning goes out, the TV folks get it through our dissemination system. Uh, there are a variety of ways people get it on their phones, et cetera, if it's a tornado warning or a flash flood warning. Um, but then those folks, the TV folks, help communicate that message. They're, they're sort of helping us with the voicing and giving it context to the warning on aiding in what people should do, how they should react to the warnings if they're in it, and, um, and or helping us uh, convey the message of the, of the day or the impacts that are right. expected. And yeah, I wanted to, and I want to kind of stay there a little bit because I just want, to, want people to understand, because I know we have a, a broad range of listeners to this podcast, people that very much could explain that, but others that are like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Um, one of the things that I'd, I'd like for you to share with us also, Keith, and I, I teach this at the University of Georgia in some of my intro classes. Mm-hmm. I just want the students to know how things happen. So National Weather Service is part of NOAA. Right. That's the parent agency of the National Weather Service. And uh, National Weather Service has these prediction centers, Hurricane Center, right. SPC, Storm Prediction Center, the uh, I guess the EMC and others. Uh, can you talk about how information filters from these national centers into the forecast sure. offices and then how you make use of those? So for as, as we're taping this here in early February, Southeast uh, U.S. is under a severe weather threat, including Georgia. And so... Somewhere uh, there's a model that was run. Uh-huh. Somewhere the storm prediction center is, uh, is making some decisions and things, and then sure. that kind of filters into the WFOs. Talk a little bit about that process. Sure. So each center, there's and, and you named a few of them. There's the WPC, the Weather Prediction Center, the Hurricane Center, the Climate Prediction Center, the Storm Prediction Center, Space Weather Prediction yeah, Center, Aviation I mean, Weather, aviation center. weather yeah. center. So all of those centers are. We call them experts in their field, right? So the Hurricane Center, obviously experts in tropical 
wouldn't want them necessarily they not that they don't know anything about winter weather but that's not their that's their focus so they're not doing snow forecasts per se um that's wpc's realm and um but for example you model up the storm prediction center so they'll they'll run numerous models come up with some sort of blend um an ensemble approach and um highlight the area of greatest threat for the following day and outline that in their various products that information is used by our forecasters to then hone in even further on timing on uh specifics that the storm prediction center has outlooked um they're not necessarily issuing the warnings now they are coordinating the watches they're the ones that will initiate watches both severe thunderstorm and tornado and uh, they'll buzz us if one of our air, if our part of our area is, is uh, the area that they're interested in. And we'll start discussing which counties we want to include. And we may have a reason to include, for example, we don't like to split the Atlanta metro up in a watch. We just rather go ahead and include the whole metro. So that's a, there's a philosophy behind that. Yes, then. there yeah. is. Okay. Um, same thing for northwest Georgia. A lot of times they'll want to include north uh, the Huntsville area, and then there's a little corner of northwest Georgia that cuts out part of the Chattanooga TV market, and it goes into the Tennessee and covers also part of Tennessee. Well, geographically, it doesn't make sense for us to cut that out. So we'll include one or two counties in our area. So these are the discussions that we'll have on the watch. Now, can I ask you about yeah. that? Because I've seen some, I saw something recently on Twitter or social media that had the sort of tornado warnings by forecast office. Right. And there were some, you know, things that if you look at it, you're like, oh man, there's an uptick in tornadoes in that region. But, and there may be, but there's some sort of philosophy differences in the offices in terms of why the numbers might look different, right? Sure. And, and everybody, you know, that there's reasons why somebody would issue a tornado warning and, or not or continue on. And a lot of times the tornado warning for, for an, one office will extend all the way to their county line so that they don't have to reissue a small little warning for a part of a county that, that ends at their county line because we don't have the ability to draw into the next warning area over. So it's just easier to extend it all the way. Well, if that storm dies, then we're never going to reissue at the line. So therefore, you have a one warning on one side and one on not, not one on the other. So you start getting these oddities that may accumulate over time and you end up with what looks like some oddities in the, in the way they're drawn out. Sure. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. On the Weather Geeks podcast, I'm talking with uh, meteorologist Keith Stellman, who is the meteorologist in charge. You might hear it called the MIC at the National Weather Service Atlanta. And we are peeling back the inner workings of a National Weather Service office. People know that the National Weather Service is out there. I think they have some understanding. And let me just kind of step up on a little soapbox for a second and say that the National Weather Service is one of the greatest values in the federal system. I, I think, and Keith, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the overall budget for the National Weather Service is over a billion, about around a billion dollars or around so. Around one billion. Estimate, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if I think I did a, an analysis one time for an article I was writing for Forbes, and I think that kind of broke out to about 
about the cup of uh, a cup of Starbucks coffee for uh, every American or something along those lines. That's right. Huge value. Think, just stop, pause as we're listening to this and think about your day without National Weather Service forecast. And again, remember we said that the National Weather Service is they're underneath pretty much any weather information you're getting. Think about your day. Think about transportation, flying, energy, farming, national security, anything. And so I'm glad that we have Keith, Keith Stellman here. Now, what are some of the specific forecast challenges that you have faced here being perhaps here in Atlanta or maybe even before that in Louisiana? Are there any particular challenges that really, and I know one here in South <laughs> is uh, uh, freezing precipitation and right. snow, but just from your, in your year, years of experience, what have been some of your biggest forecast challenges? So uh, there's, everybody's career has a couple defining moments, so to speak. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously it does speak to some of the challenges we face, but uh, the biggest one is probably the snow jam event, snow jam, snow, snow jam whatever we want to call it. This, <laughs> he's referring to the big event in Atlanta. I believe it was around 2014. 2014. Yeah. I was, I, I remember it well, Keith, because that was the year the AMS meeting was being yep. held in Atlanta and I was present at that mm-hmm. year. So yeah, that was the week later. And then we had an ice storm that followed on the heels of that. Um, and so that was a very rough two to four week period uh, during that time because we were also helping with the AMS meeting that was the week after. Yeah, re- re- just briefly recap that event for the listeners. So that was an event where it was a very subtle feature in the upper levels coming through. And there was a lot of question early on whether there would even be enough moisture in the atmosphere to produce. It was a very dry atmosphere. Um, dew points were really low. And, and, and so there was just models were struggling to produce any amount of precip. And, and you know, if, if on a normal day, if it's raining and we forecast a 10th of an inch of rain and we get a quarter of an inch of rain, nobody seems to care, right? It's not a big deal. But when you're talking about snow and it's magnified times a factor of 10, or in that case, even higher, because the ratio was higher. Now we're talking a big deal. And that's kind of what happened was the models weren't seeing a lot of precip out of it. We ended up getting a little bit more QPF, so to speak, out of it. And um, the ratios were higher, so we ended up getting a lot more now, snow. Now, now for the, the, the uninitiated meteorologist, you mentioned two terms I'd like you to kind of uh, mm-hmm. break down a little bit. You mentioned QPF, you mentioned ratios. Okay. Uh, break those down for, right. for the per, per person that's not a weather geek that may not know so what those So QPF mean. is the, the, what I call it, quantitative precipitation forecast. It's basically the amount of liquid precipitation we're, we're expecting. And you'll hear that term, QPF. That's, that, that's what that stands for. So it's amount of liquid Um now, the ratio, snow ratio, snow, liquid, water equivalent, basically. And um, we're, when you take rainfall or liquid and it converted into a snow, there's usually some sort of ratio when you melt it down to the liquid water equivalent. And typically, it's about a 10 to 1 ratio. So you, for, for every uh, 0.1 inches of liquid water you get, that's one inch of snow, right. if you do the math. So right. you can see there's a factor of 10 magnitude there and so but, if you this miss one it, was higher though this, this, that this one was about 12 to 15 on that day so we had very little liquid equivalent but multiply it times a factor of 15 that's why we ended up with 2.6 inches of snow that right day. right and, and the interesting thing and i know you have to deal with people like the governor's office mm-hmm. and all kinds of stakeholders because this was not just about the actual weather forecast. It was about the timing. It was about the fact that, as I recall, just for, we did some just uh, analysis for class. It was a particularly cold day. Yes. And so we usually are hovering around 32, 33, right. but this stuff froze immediately. So that, that particular day we had had a uh, 
prior, just prior to that, uh, a pretty good Arctic front come in. And, um, and so the air mass leading up to it was already cold. A typical ingredient for winter weather is we got air, the cold air has to be in place. It doesn't come in after the fact. But um, the temperature at the start of the snow was around 30. And we migrated down to 27. And by, and by 7 p.m. that night, we were 21 degrees mm-hmm. and it was still snowing. Um, look, historically in Atlanta, um, there have only been four times in Atlanta that it snowed uh, under the 27 degree threshold. Wow. And that was one of them. The other one, the most famous one, was 1982 Snow Jam. That was also an under 27 degree snowfall. Right. Um, two other events occurred were on weekends. So it's it's rare to have the combination of snow and less than 27 degrees, and that's ultimately what led to the quick refreeze on the roadways. Yeah, and I, I just so ease up on us down here in Atlanta. This is an anomaly <laughs> event. We can handle two to three inches of snow, but when it's two to three inches of snow and it's really cold and things start freezing and we have uh, a different infrastructure in terms of snow removal. I, I lived in the D.C. area, and they have a little bit more than we do, and, but it's still, they react about the same as we do in Atlanta. So um, just kind of ease up on and us down We have here. hills, too. And we have hills. Great point. We have hills here in, in topography. <laughs> so uh, what about, I mean, I know you in your office, I mean, in, with Hurricane Michael uh, 2018, yep. um, came into Southwest Georgia, still uh-huh. packing hurricane strength winds, 100 plus mile per hour gust. Um, what was your role or exposure as an office with Michael? So Michael was the first time we had ever issued hurricane warning from our office. That's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and um, obviously, we don't take that lightly, it being the first time we'd ever did it. And of course, in context, we didn't have the ability to do that many years ago. They added that ability to the inland offices over the last 10, 15 is that Is that something that was added post-Sandy, uh, or is that different it from was, that whole... It was post... This all came about post the 2004... 2005 hurricane seasons with Katrina. Oh, with Katrina and all. And, yeah, right. The, the, the and when we extent, went into the yep. we went into the Greek letters for naming. Correct. Call, right. Yeah. And the, and how far inland those storms had an impact and the inland office's ability to convey a message. And so that was added for those offices to handle that kind of, kind of thing. Um, and really, you think back, Opal was another example of, of one that would have met that qualification Absolutely. here. Um, but for us, it was really communicating the message. We knew once we started getting close to the event and seeing the storm continue to intensify, we knew that we were going to have a wind event on our hands. And um, and then we started looking at timing. And what concerned us the most, and we conveyed this to emergency managers by phone call. We called each emergency manager in the hurricane warning uh, on the phone and talked to them individually to let them know that the storm was going to be hitting our area, moving into our area in the middle of the night. And so... What they needed to convey to residents was that obviously they weren't going to be able to respond to calls that come in in the middle of the night if trees come down on people's homes. And um, that may be something they have to deal with um, throughout the night and then figure out when they're going to be able to respond to any calls that do come in, uh, assuming power still up, uh, do, should trees fall on the houses. So those were the kinds of things and conversations that were going on behind the scenes with emergency managers just to prep them for that kind of scenario. Yeah, and I think I'm, I'm glad Keith mentioned this because I don't think people realize how much someone in uh, Keith's position has to interact with not just the meteorologist in his office, but with emergency managers and whatnot. Uh, I, I know, for example, one thing that your office does here every year is there's something called the Integrated Warning Team, I think, yep. IWT. IWT. And, yeah, and so that's, I mean, talk a little bit about sort of the, I mean, I 
you have NWS chat and you have uh, webinar you know, things that you send out daily. Talk about some of these non-meteorological dissemination strategies that you use. Sure. And, and everything, if, if you think about communication and, and what we do, it's really about trust. It's about establishing trust so that when we have something that's really important, important or we believe is important that our partners trust us in delivering that information to them. And so we set up a lot of meetings outside of, you know, the, the weather events um, to begin to establish the trust, explain where we're coming from so that when we do contact them, there is a level of trust and that they will trust us because they're having to make decisions based on the faith of the forecast and their trust in us and looking at the forecast and conveying that information to them. So um, a lot of these meetings are enabling us to get together, build relationships, to establish that trust so that when we're in the heat of the battle, we have that open line of communications and trust with each other. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back. On the Weather Geeks podcast, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia speaking with Keith Stellman from the National Weather Service Atlanta. I want to have a little fun with this next segment because I know as meteorologists, we deal with sort of perceptions about weather and whether we're right or wrong, percent chance of rain. When you issue a percent chance of rain forecast, Keith, out of the mm-hmm. Weather Service office, can you explain to people philosophically what that means? 30 percent chance of rain. So, I mean, it's it's there's a one in three chance that you're going to see precipitation. Right. Basically. But it's not zero, right? It's not zero. Right. Because people here is low 20, 30, and I think they perceive that it's not going to rain it's sometime. It's still one in right, one in five or one in 10. Right. right. It, it's the same philosophy really as the whole 100-year um, flood. It's a percentage, right? Exactly. It's, it's not that it's you just get another a flood one. every 100 years. Right. Exactly. Right. It's yeah. just, it's a probability. Yes. It's it's a chance. Yes. Right? yes. Um, so if we ran five computer models and there was a 20% chance of rain. One of them said it was going to rain. Right. Four of them said it was not. Right. What about this idea about the aerial coverage? Because I've seen this whole idea of confidence times area. And how does that play? Sure. Well, I mean, the bigger the area, yeah. the greater the chance it's going to rain across that area. Right. right. So it's it's um, for the chance for the folks that hear 20%, that's 20% for you and your small little area that you make up, basically. Right. Um, it's not 20 across the whole area. We do our forecast on a grid, so right. it's a four-kilometer grid. Right, right. And so that, that that brings to bear another question. That's a great – each office has this area that you're mm-hmm. responsible for. Right. Um, and your area, I believe, is mostly north Georgia and into central Georgia. Central Georgia. Exactly as well. How many counties is it? 96. 90, and that, that has to be larger than the average. For it the, is for, the for largest country. in the country. I, I thought so. And for, by the way, for those listening, we're taping here in Georgia, which Georgia already has, I believe, 159 counties. I don't know 159 exactly. 159 counties. Yeah, 150, yeah. I grew up here. We had to learn and school. Um, so I would imagine that his office, that's not surprising for me to hear that it's the largest right. responsibility area. And does that create any specific challenges? Oh yeah. Yeah. It definitely creates a lot of challenges. Um, there are, um, 
96 emergency managers. We have to know them all. Um, wow. And, you know, there's 14 counties in the metro Atlanta alone. alone. So there's, I mean, the metro Atlanta is, is, is a significant workload for us just by itself. Um, you've got the mountain counties that are up in the north. You've got the coastal plain counties down the south. The climate varies yes. drastically across that. that so. And so does also, and this raises another point. I heard it in IWT one time. Don't Are there different criteria for so the mountain areas versus as we get down here for certain things like winter advisories and things like that? Yeah, so we, we um, are a little looser with the criteria in the north in the mountains because especially the peaks above about 2,000 feet, uh, we tend to get a lot more snow in those counties. Um, and so we may not issue as often for them or we'll raise the criteria to three inches instead of two inches uh, for the mountains. Um, and that's a point of discussion. I know the the other offices around us do the same thing for the Smokies. They're much higher, like six inches for snow for winter storm warning. Um, but as far as the counties go, yeah, it's 96 counties and we have, um, you know, Eight million people within the CWA. Um, it's, I think, the ninth largest CWA in the country and largest in terms of counties. So there's obviously a lot of things happening within the within the county warning area. And the the problems it creates because the counties are so small is when we do warnings, not to include too many counties in a single warning, um, because that just makes the warning too long. And so uh, we have that as a challenge, obviously. Yeah. So it, it's, it's interesting to hear that you think about these sort of false alarm issues and perception issues of the forecast as well. I know in the National Weather Service, there's weather ready nation and impact based forecasting and those types of things, facets and all kinds of things that are ongoing to try to sort of bring the forecast out of our realm into sort of more meaningful information to the public. Um, are you and your office engaged in any of that? And what are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. It's it. I mean, it's an ongoing effort reaching out to partners. There's partners that we probably haven't even reached out or haven't even communicated with yet that we don't even know exist. And it, through Weather Ready Nation, it's about discovering those partners, those that are impacted by it, using them to help convey the message to be message amplifiers for us because we realize we can't, the 20 folks in my office can't do it all. And um, that's where TV media and, and all of these close core partners come into play to help us communicate the message about weather impacts, weather safety, um, all the sorts of things that work with weather. Yeah. I got a question for you. As, as what I would consider the, the lead federal meteorologist here in the state, or at least in the northern part of the state as the MIC, what would you tell the average listener about how to consume weather information from apps. Do you have any sort of specific thoughts about the app-based world that we're in of weather? Because I, I constantly have people shoving a phone in my face. Well, my <laughs> app said this. So, I, you know, always check the source of the weather um, and where, you're, where it's coming from. Every app is pulling its information from somewhere. Um, check that source and just know that it's coming from a reputable source. But more importantly, double-check it. If it's, if it's specifically going to impact you, check another app or another source of information to see if there's differences. Um, if there are differences, then obviously there's maybe less confidence in that forecast. Ultimately, the app is going to give you a number because we have to give you a number. But behind that number are probably a wide variety of other numbers and possibilities. Sometimes they're all together. Sometimes they're not. And um, so if there's a specific forecast that's of interest to you or it's going to impact you, my advice would be to check other sources to see if it 
agrees. Now, that's really a piece of interesting advice that Keith just gave you. He just essentially asked you, without you knowing it, to do some ensemble forecasting of your own because, you know, we, we use ensembling quite a bit in meteorology now, and it's sort of looking at uh, multiple streams of information to sort of see sort of where the range of uncertainty may be. And so I, I, that's a bit of advice I've never heard. So I actually um, really appreciate that Keith said that because I think that's really good advice and, you know, perhaps something I will start passing on when I get that question now. Now, I want to shift now to sort of workforce and issue. You hire people. And so I know there are a lot of that. And, and candidly, the good news is I've been seeing some hiring uh-huh. going on in the National yeah. Service. We were in a period where things were a little dire. And you mentioned earlier, right. and, and not just your office, there were some short staffing uh-huh. and things like that. I'm seeing that sort of loosen up some. So for the young listeners out there that are interested in the weather service, what are you all looking for? For the students, um, I have to tell you, the the four that I just hired, if I had to compete with them today, it would be a, it would be a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I've um, often thought about you know that how it well. goes. Um, it, you know, two of the two of the four have master's degrees. One has a PhD. I just hired right out of college. One guy's uh, got a college degree and Coast Guard experience, um, and still and still active. Um, and so they're. When you look at their resumes, it's more than just getting a degree. It's leadership. It's involvement in various programs in and out of the office. It's um, you know maybe church leadership or youth leadership or there's their Boy Scout, Eagle Scouts. All of these things are part of their resume, and they all factor into rising to the top of the list when you're when you're applying and. And some of the candidates that are coming in are so impressive. Now, what about things like, and I know this is big in our program, and I know we have a graduate um, from our program that's in your office now. Shout out to Nick Morgan out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we've been emphasizing when we're training our students, yeah, the meteorology, but also getting exposure to GIS mm-hmm. or modeling. Uh, yep. Are those things important? Oh, yeah, they are. Yeah. They absolutely are. Because in the end, um, you, the assumption is everybody's going to have a degree, right? So what is it that you also bring to the table? that could be of use in the office. And sure enough, the, you, I'm, we're seeing those skill sets sort of play out with creative ways to map data and display things or show things that we need when we go to talk to partners, et cetera. And so um, all of those skills are certainly playing themselves out. It, it was one question that kind of going to not fit in the sequence, but I, it just it dawned on me. I wanted to ask you this earlier because National Weather Service Office here in, uh, in Peachtree City there's also a river forecast center and also somewhere in the Atlanta area. I think there's an aviation mm-hmm. type activity as well. That's a part of weather service or NOAA as well. Can you distinguish how, what the differences in the RFCs and the aviation activities? And is that typical of all forecast sure. offices? So that's another, another example of what makes my job unique here is um, the fact that we have those other components. Well, the river forecast center is its own separate office and it's co-located with us. In so there's City. a, der- what, what, is the head of that call? That is a hydrologist in charge, okay. or HIC. Okay. And right. um, he is essentially my counterpart, okay. but he runs that operation. There's only 13 of those in the country. Their sole responsibility is river modeling. Most of them are civil engineers. They got a few meteorologists on their staff, but they are calibrating models, running computer models for the rivers, for the main stem rivers mostly, um, taking the rainfall that fell plus the rainfall that's expected and running it through and giving us forecasts on the rivers. They're working with also the Corps of Engineers for dam releases, um, pool level stuff, um, and management of the dams and reservoirs as well. 
And so that's their sole function. And they'll communicate with us. We'll talk to them about various river forecasts, um, especially when we start getting into flood situations. And we have a hydrologist on our staff. Right, right. As far as the aviation goes, there are there are 21 what they call center weather service units. They are the aviation arm of the uh, agency. In fact, they're actually funded by the FAA through oh, wow. reimbursement. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so their salary is paid by the FAA, but they're weather service employees. They uh, they actually work for me. There's a there's an MIC of the unit. He's underneath me as well, um, and then he's got a staff of three, and they're embedded within the. Uh, Air Traffic Control Center, which is over in Hampton, Georgia, here. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're sitting right next to the air traffic controllers. And um, they're helping manage the airspace with in the airport itself, the landings, the takeoffs, the traffic in and out, especially when it gets into low ceiling situations or wind shifts. They're helping communicate our forecast to them on specific timing. And in Atlanta, for example, if you get a wind shift from the south east to the southwest they have to flip the runways oh, right, right right and sure. that takes about an hour and a half for them to do and get all the planes to yeah, change direction oriented, change yeah, sides sure right so um we're communicating those types of things so a simple wind shift to uh the folks that are embedded over there and they're communicating that to the air traffic controller so that they can begin to establish a plan to flip the airport yeah. etc and I, I wanted to make sure i got that question out because i just again i don't think people realize the complexity of this operation that's the national weather service La- last question for keith stillman what over the years you've been at this for a while now what what sort of technological or human resource or modeling advances have you have made your job easier what, what do you think are the top couple of things that really have made things uh, better for us sure so i mean it, Back in the old days, say the old days, um, we only had a couple models to look at, and we didn't have all the fields to ever, you know, to, to view, etc. There are so many model choices and ensembles now, and we can run them with with computer with the computer speeds that that can produce these things. Um, for example, the HER model, the one that runs every hour. I just looked at the HER model before I came into the interview today because my daughter, 16-year-old daughter, is taking her driving test today. And I didn't want the rain at that test, but I was trying to see what the HER model was saying. Right. So, I mean, there are so many of those didn't exist just 10 years ago. Um, they were in the works and the planning, and but they have made the job so much easier by giving us a lot more detailed information. And there's becoming so many more of them that we're able to ensemble them together to come up with ultimately what's turning out to be a better forecast. And that is one of the things that's changing in the whole forecast paradigm. It's There's the ability of the computers to rerun and reinitialize and recreate forecasts so quickly, um, just like the HER and some of the others, that it's, um, it's taking us maybe a step back from creation of the forecast to the managing of a forecast. Oh, wow. That's it. And, and I'm hearing a lot of talk. I was just at the AMS meeting as you were you up in uh, Boston, and I heard a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning, mm-hmm. maybe a sort of the next phase of that process. Right. And I, and I know you all have a dual pole radar as well, mm-hmm. which I, I, you know, as a radar guy working on radar for earlier part of my career, I know that's been a, a boon for sort of severe weather assessment, right. winter weather and so forth as well. So Yeah, no, the, the whole dual pole aspect that came in uh, 2011, 2012, 12. In fact, we were one of the first offices to see the TDS signature 
um, on on the dual pole radar. Oh wow, really? Uh, Steve Nelson was one of oh, the ones. Wow. Well, he's been doing a lot of research with that. Well, uh, he's an Oklahoma guy, so yeah, I guess he is that's an not surprising. <laughs> Um, in fact, uh, one of the big studies he's been working on for years is the whole relationship between the TDS, the tornado debris signature, and height, the height of the debris, and its relationship to the actual intensity of the tornado itself. And there is a relationship. And uh, we're able to use that kind of information now in the warning, the tornado warnings itself. And so another advancement in technology that's leading to um, better information. Yeah, and I think the sort of as we get ready to draw to a close here, it's been a great conversation, uh, exactly the kind of information that I hope that uh, we'd be able to convey to our listeners. Keith, where can people follow the National Weather Service, Atlanta, or follow you in social media? Sure. So weather.gov slash Atlanta is our website. Um, NW at NWS Atlanta is our Twitter, and uh, you can find us on Facebook as well. And uh, we've... Uh, done some pretty good things on our social media. I think we're getting ready to set up Facebook Live and do some some live stuff. Um, and uh, we post a lot of our briefings on our YouTube channel. Oh, uh, I didn't so, realize you had yep. a YouTube channel. We have a YouTube okay. channel that uh, all of our briefings that we do for our partners within 30 minutes are posted there. So if you want to see what we're conveying to our partners, they'll be on our YouTube channel. Now, is that something that all weather service offices are doing or is this something unique to Atlanta? All of them have the ability to do it. Okay. I don't know that no, they're, they're all doing, doing it. it. Right. right. Well, well, shout out to you guys for doing it. I get a lot of those uh, um, briefings through my email, but I, I didn't realize that it's actually available to you on YouTube as yep. well. Yep. Very good. Sure is. Well, before I get out of here, you know what time it is, Weather Geeks listeners. It's time for the Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weedy at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Jordan Girth. Jordan is a leveraged observation lead for the National Weather Service, which means that the data that comes into the Weather Service via mesonets, aircraft, ships, satellites, etc., is curated and organized by Jordan and his team. Hailing from the Midwest, he has also been taking twice daily thermometer readings since grade school. He sounds like someone just like me. If you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, please check out our social pages on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and this has been Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.